Our greatest need right now, our greatest challenge is primary care in America and around the world. So, you know, we're highly specialized in medicine here because we all want to have mastery as human beings. Public thinks all the doctors want to specialize to make a lot of money. I don't think so. I think most doctors specialize because they want to have mastery in a field so they feel competent. The, the wonderful people that are going to primary care are totally underappreciated. This is our, this is our greatest problem. Primary care and primary care internal medicine, urgent care, and perhaps emergency medicine, these are the hardest specialties with the most burnout. This is the biggest problem area. We have to support people in primary care because patients don't, they have complex medical problems. They don't know they go to the neurologist or they go to the gastroenterologist or the cardiologist. They're gonna go to urgent care, primary care. We, we have to support these people so they can deliver high, highly reliable care. And they're burning out, and it's a hard job, not paid enough, and we need to think about how do we redesign primary care. All right, you're not an orthopod, so maybe this isn't the right question for you, but what are the similarities between carpentry and medicine? Yeah, Jeff, so I think I mentioned I did carpentry before med school, and the connection, the connection is building things. So. I consider myself an entrepreneur, started a company and getting the gratification of building something, just like putting something together in wood. Absolutely. We'll dig further into that later. But welcome back to How It's Med, the podcast where we chat with brilliant inventors, founders, funders, and physicians who are shaping the healthcare systems of the future. We learn about the stories, secrets, and skills that these amazing people leverage to make their impact so that you too can be better prepared to make the future of healthcare more accessible and of higher quality. This time around, we're interviewing the inimitable Dr. Art Papier, artist, printmaker, carpenter, dermatologist, and CEO and co-founder of Visual DX, a diagnostic clinical decision system that reportedly boasts the world's largest, most equitable professional medical image collection. Art, how are you doing today? Jeff, I'm doing great, and thanks so much for having me on your podcast. Really appreciate you making time to come on. I know that you you wear five, six hats, but uh, I, I appreciate the fact that you came on regardless. Um, jokes aside, Art, I, we had a chat a couple months ago, and uh, you highlighted that you were a carpenter, that you did so much before medicine. It was a rather unconventional journey. Was there that influence from your pre-medical career in your decision-making to decide on dermatology, or was that decision serendipitous? Well, it was a combination. Hmm. I'd ruled out a lot of things during medical school, and I had a really good friend, Dr. Bowers, who pointed me towards dermatology. And, you know, there is obviously that visual connection between this art background and thinking about graphics and, and visuals. So ended up that dermatology, not only from looking at rashes, but also looking under the microscope. It's really like a truly wonderful specialty because you can really close the diagnostic loop. You know, you see the patient, uh, sometimes you do a biopsy, then look at the pathology of the biopsy of the patient they saw the rash on. So you, you really have this training loop between what you're seeing clinically and then what you're seeing microscopically that really cements the disease process for you. So that was really rewarding for me, but I didn't know that when I mm -hmm. 
decided to be a dermatologist. I think it was really this whole interest in pattern recognition and thinking about visualization of information. Yeah, fair enough. And I mean, that segues well into the next question, uh, which is kind of about the your interest in medical informatics and patterns and knowledge gathering in medicine. Um, I, I know that one of your mentors that you mentioned in our previous conversation uh, was Dr. Larry Weed, who created the all-famous SOAP medical format that I use that so many residents and staff use all over the world now, and that he influenced your decision towards medical informatics. To kind of start the conversation that we're going to delve into, can you explain to me what medical informatics is like you would to a five-year-old? I would say it's the field of using computer or now smartphone-based computerized information to improve clinical medicine. That's and I'm describing clinical informatics, not bioinformatics. We're more talking about computational uh, research around how do we improve the delivery of care in the exam room, and I would extend that to include at the patient at home as well. Mm-hmm. And to delve a bit deeper into that, how exactly does computation improve the clinical, I guess, experience or clinical performance overall? And maybe to, I mean, zoom further back, how did medical uh, informatics make an impact back in the 1990s? Well, there's a a couple of questions tied together there. One is like, what was, what was medical informatics accomplishing in the 1990s. And I would say not much. And, but then, you know, what, what were people trying to do as early as the 1960s? I think that many realize that the human brain isn't really powerful enough to deliver consistent, highly reliable care every 20 minutes in complex situations. And, you know, you mentioned Larry Weed and I always kind of frame it, um, through my work and the lens of Larry, who taught so many a generation there of internists in the 60s and 70s before me about the, the need for systems of care rather than relying on the variability of, of different humans. And so, you know, often people use the example of aviation to describe, you know, the difference between medicine and aviation where Pilots have rigorous training um, in a in a cockpit simulator and have checklists and they follow exacting process and the communication standards are very precise to talk to the tower a certain way. So, you know, if you fly in a plane for Southwest or you're a passenger on United, you're pretty sure that your pilot has has a consistent behavior to deliver you safely on, you know, takeoff, flight, landing, taxiing all happening the same way. But you go into a a modern medical center, even some of our best, on the same hallway, you might have tremendous variation between the different physicians because one trained in the South, one trained in the North, one changed in Europe, and there's just different habits. And so I think this was pointed out by Larry and, and others 50 years ago that it's a recipe for disaster when you have just like a cottage industry with no enforced standards. That's fair enough. And if there's such a need for standardization 
because humans aren't wired to gather so much information and synthesize it every 20 minutes, then why was medical informatics not making, I guess, much of an impact in the 1990s when computer systems were actually advanced enough to do so to an extent? I'd argue it's not even making much of an impact in 2023 relative to what it could do. I mean, it's, um, look, there's cultural and economic reasons why it's so hard to change medicine. And the standard that we have still really is memorization and uh, studying for your boards. So we're, we're, we're saying, you know, to med students, you know, use the best evidence as possible. We want you to look up in journals and bring all this evidence to bear in your decision-making. Yet the, the final bar is to pass your boards. And so you have students that are spending lots of money for their board review, um, course, you know, study aids and all that so that they can pass their boards, which is really feats of memorization. And so now they're trying to shift that a little bit to clinical reasoning, right? So you're, you're not really doing the boards just about what you can put in your brain. But for the last 50 years, the standard has been that, you know, you go to med school, you do your residency, and now you're a busy family physician or nurse practitioner, and you're supposed to be highly reliable every 20 minutes when a patient can come in with a different chief complaint of 500 different symptoms that a patient can complain of. And you're expecting this human to take what is currently known in medical science and deliver it to that problem of that patient reliably every 20 minutes. And Larry Weed said it was a myth 50 years ago, still a myth. And yet with that's the majority of what's done is, is that kind of behavior. So you have in medicine today, you have some incredibly creative problem solvers that are using all kinds of tools in the exam room to help them answer these questions. And then, as I said earlier, the exam room next door, the problem solver isn't even looking at a book, never mind a computer. Like they're, they're trying to do everything out of your brain, which means that they know everything. And I don't know everything. I hardly know dermatology, you know, they're like, there's so much, there's so much to know. Fair enough. And, he, and Larry said, we get away with it because 80, 90% of the time, common things happen commonly. And so you, you can diagnose 80% of your, of your patient visits correctly and offer the right treatment correctly 80% of the time. But we're doctors for the 20%. We're not doctors for the 80%. Because you don't need doctors for 80% because it's easy. You wouldn't need to go to med school to diagnose strep throat or otitis or something common. Mm -hmm. Doctors to solve the 20%. So then to dig a bit further into what has improved between the 90s and now, has there been any improvement in your eyes? And if so, what? Yeah, I think we're slowly getting there. Change is hard. Everything takes time. We're all impatient. We like it to change overnight, but the reality is we're moving, a, we're moving an ocean tanker. Yeah. It doesn't turn on a dime. Yeah. And so we are seeing bright spots. I mean, when Hippocrates came out on 
the Palm Pilot, I don't know how many years ago, then ended up on a smartphone. We moved from this huge book, the PDR for drug dosing, to just being able to type into Hippocrates and get a reliable dose. And so people forget about these small advances like that, where you, you now have highly reliable drug reference in your pocket. And that makes you more efficient, more accurate, et cetera. And now you have that built into the EHR. Now we could have a whole show about like the poor engineering of the EHR, right? We could talk about that for probably five hours about what we tolerate in terms of antiquated design in EHRs. But there is progress now in that we're able to see what our colleagues were thinking, or you're a radiologist. And you want to know what's going on clinically with the patient. Instead of having to hunt down the doctor by telephone, you go into EHR and you see the patient's medical history to help you think through the problem more richly. So we are making progress, but what's frustrating, you know, my friends and peers that are up to you know nine o'clock at night, still doing their Epic notes or, you know, the overcrowded inbox from too many messages. We've created problems as well as solved problems. Mm -hmm. And talking about problems, what are, or what is the single greatest problem that you think if solved would lead to a faster change of that giant tanker that is uh, medicine towards excellent care? Our greatest need right now, our greatest challenge is primary care in America and around the world. So, you know, we're highly specialized in medicine here because we all want to have mastery as human beings. Public thinks all the doctors want to specialize to make a lot of money. I don't think so. I think most doctors specialize because they want to have mastery in a field so they feel competent. The, the wonderful people that are going to primary care are totally underappreciated. This is our, this is our greatest problem. Primary care and primary care, internal medicine, urgent care, and perhaps emergency medicine, these are the hardest specialties with the most burnout. This is the biggest problem area. We have to support people in primary care because patients don't, when they have complex medical problems, they don't know they go to the neurologist or they go to the gastroenterologist or the cardiologist. They're going to go to urgent care, primary care. We, we have to support these people so they can deliver high, highly reliable care. And they're burning out, and it's a hard job. It's not paid enough, and we need to think about how do we redesign primary care. Mm -hmm. And what changes to medical informatics uh, or its practice currently would best allow us to support primary care physicians? Um, well, that's also another probably three-hour conversation, but... Um, you know, just, we're just riffing here. It's a podcast, so we're riffing, right? Um, I would say that we need electronic medical records at work. They need to have easy input and understandable output. And we need to create a system where people, patients can be listened to, where they're, we're not rushing the doctor because they have too many people to see and we have this problem with churn. So we have to think about how do we bring information to the fingertips 
of the problem solver that doesn't overload them. It's not TMI. And so we have a tremendous problem with note bloat. I think we have to return to the basics. We have to return to like, what problems am I trying to solve for my patient in partnership with my patient? How am I collaborating with my patient to understand their problem? What are their symptoms? What are the tools that I'm going to use to really bring the best information right to the moment to help ask the right questions and, and take the next steps. And so really essentially the problems for a clinician are what's the diagnosis? What are the best tests to order? Do I order CT or ultrasound? What lab studies do I order? My assessment, the diagnosis. Now, what therapy do I order that's contextual to the beliefs of my patient? What my patient really wants that's safe and efficacious? And how do I, how do I help this patient understand all my Latin speak and all the confusing words that I use? So it's really diagnosis, testing, treatment, and patient understanding that we need to improve. And that's all in the context of, you know, tons of hype about what we're, what we're going to do in terms of health IT. Mm -hmm. So to connect that to, uh, your, your work with visual DX, that the melding of your interests in medicine and the troubles that we face in medicine with your interests in medical informatics seems to have resulted in the founding of visual DX. So what's the story behind the founding of the company? Yeah, I see like all good work is derivative. It's very rare for someone to come up with something that's totally out of the blue, right? So, uh, you know, I always reference Larry Weed because he's the, the reason I'm on this podcast. If I hadn't met Larry Weed, I would never become involved in medical informatics. I mean, the year was 1984 that we're talking about when I met him as a medical student. And he was talking about for 15 or 20 years, he started talking about in the 60s, this idea that we need to bring computers and structure and standards to our thinking. That's, you know, why he invited, invented the soap note format and the, and the concept of the problem-oriented record. And, and that was a really revolutionary idea in its age. And people don't, to this day, really don't even understand it because when you look at a problem list in a hospital, 99% of the time, the only thing you see in the problem list are diagnoses, which means that we know the diagnosis for sure. I would love to see in a problem list, unexplained headache, unexplained uh, diarrhea, unexplained chest pain, unexplained rash, where, you know, a workup was done and then you still weren't sure. So your problem list had unexplained symptoms. Because that was the idea of a problem list. You, you kept the patient's symptom in the problem list until you had a firm diagnosis and you had a basis for the diagnosis. And therefore, you didn't, the problem list was trying to prevent premature closure and anchoring. So once you put that diagnosis in the chart and then somebody else picks up that chart or, you know, looks at it electronically, then they're locked into this prior diagnosis and getting off that anchor of that prior diagnosis. So there were really revolutionary ideas that Larry had about, you know, using the structure of the record to improve our thinking. And that's why the, the paper in the New England Journal was called Medical Records That Guide and Teach. 
And so the idea was to have a medical record that would have structure that would aid your thinking. And by having a checklist or having a problem list or a problem-oriented record, the checklist frees up the pilot to know that they're going through the standards that they need to go through. And the problem-oriented record was in with that regard, kind of like a checklist to structure the thinking. And now fast forward 50 years. So we're, we're trying to, um, bring to electronic charting something that guides and teaches. And who would say that the current EHRs without naming them really guide and teach? Really, they were invented around the idea we have to raise our billing codes. You know, how do I charge a higher level E&M code for the CPT so that my hospital gets paid more? So that, that encouraged note bloat. And then we have all this copy and paste in the record and who knows what the truth is. And then they say, okay, well, we'll use chat GPT to distill the truth or we'll do ambient listening. But then the challenge is still bloat. And how do you get to the cusp of the issue? Like what's, what's the patient's problem? What's the objective data and how am I going to assess it? And so, you know, there's still, as there was 50 years ago, there's not enough attention to how do we improve thinking in medicine, because we're still basically thinking um, by the seat of our pants in the exam room. We're just relying on this thing. And this thing has a lot of problems. And how exactly uh, did Visual DX come about in order to solve those problems? Okay, so yeah, so I met Larry and he turned me on to this idea and I worked for him for free during med student evenings and weekends, you know, he was like the best at working with students and convincing them to paint the fence with him. And so he basically sat me down. He said, all right, you sit here and I'm going to teach you how to read the literature. You're going to come over after medical school and we work for me on nights and weekends and I'm not going to pay you anything, but you'll learn something. And so I did that. And then I ended up uh, fortunately ended up in dermatology, right? When this company, you're too young, you don't remember Kodak, right? You probably never put a roll of film in a camera, but there was this company in Rochester, New York called Kodak. That was the equivalent of what Apple is today in, in the 1950s and sixties, where every roll of film was money and profit to this company and paper to print your, your pictures. And they were announcing scanning film to digital, right? When I moved to Rochester in the early nineties. And so the light bulb kind of clicked that had spent all this time with Larry and we're just thinking from an internal medicine point of view and realizing how different dermatology is because in internal medicine, it's history, 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 the subjective. So, you know, subjective, objective assessment plan, dermatology is really objective subjective assessment plan. You want to, you know, we want to teach our residents to look first, describe what they see and not be biased, right? So, because you have that skill, you can look and you can describe. So the example would be a patient goes in and says to the primary care doctor, you know, I was out hunting and I leaned over and this branch caught my scalp and it's not healing. I had this wound in my scalp for a month. And the doc looks at the wound and is then led down the wrong path by that history. 
listen to the history, 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 and, you know, get the history of the wound hunting instead of looking at dermatologists, just say, I don't need the history. Let me look. They look and they see the pearliness and the telangiectasias of a basal cell. So a basal cell cancer often bleeds and people like to make up rationales for their denial. So instead of thinking to yourself, oh, I might have a skin cancer. You think I'm a hunter. I was out hunting. I got wound, a wound in my scalp. And now I can't believe I'd have skin cancer. So the subjective could lead you down the wrong path. So dermatology is totally different. You start often with what you see, pattern recognition. And so really it's visual DX is the coming together of thinking around both analytical thinking and pattern recognition thinking. And the book to read and about this is Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, who talks about system one or system two. And it turns out in medicine, we don't know which type side of the brain we're going to use. And you have to do this incredible context shifting all day long. If you take the job of an emergency physician, where sometimes it's just instant pattern recognition, they know exactly what's going on right away. And on the other hand, they have to get that history. They have to get a lot of lab studies, radiographic studies, and put it all together. And it's all system two or system one pattern recognition. So Visual DX is really a coming together of trying to make computing and medicine much more like an Apple experience. Like what I'm passionate about is good design. And right now we have a big push in Visual DX towards a new version of Visual DX around some design that changes that we think will speed the use of the tool, right? And so we are passionate about this idea of, of not just having like an elegant spreadsheet, which is what most EHRs are like, to something that really visually is as good design is compelling. That's fair enough. Um, and I think that's that's super applicable to the current practice of medicine overall with the uh, overwhelming amount of data that we have and the amount that we're supposed to synthesize. Um, but to, to, to go back to the beginning of this conversation, VisualDX has access to, and I quote, the largest and most equitable co collection of professional medical images. So was this uh, intended focus of the, the company to build a moat, or was it a serendipitous feature? We, we in a memory-based system, we teach to the classic. We say, you know, if you're looking for psoriasis, look at the elbows, the knees, and scalp, and you'll see these scaly plaques. Or you're looking for Lyme disease, you teach the students, look for an expanding bullseye. And you have these classic prototypical examples, but once you practice a medicine for a while, you quickly realize that the patients don't come in like the book, right? And so we realized right at the inception of our work to really do dermatology in the digital space that you, you have to show the full expanse of the way patients present. So they can present mild or severe, early or late. Uh, the rash could appear in different body locations and look different in different age groups. So seborrheic dermatitis, a common condition, can look very, very different in infants and children than it does in the elderly, as an example, right? And 
So, and then immunocompromised patients present very, very differently, particularly when they have viral illness. So there's all this variation. And then we realized uh, right away that, of course, erythema, redness, and purpur leaking of blood into the skin looks very, very different in brown skin. Red and purple on brown just looks deep brown. It doesn't look red or purple. So we got very interested in this. Right at the beginning, we started collecting the spectrum. And then we realized that we couldn't do this really out of just collection in Rochester, New York. So we started partnering with people that were passionate and are still passionate about medical photography, right? Which is kind of a lost art now because there's this paradoxical thing that this wonderful tool in our pocket does. It makes photography accessible to all and everybody just takes a quick picture, but the picture's nowhere as good as a picture taken with a large 35 millimeter camera, whether it's digital or film with those bigger lenses, with the right lighting, the right background. And so right in the beginning, because of my background, I was very interested in like really high quality imagery. And so at Visual DX, we're not a wiki model. We're not saying everybody just send us pictures, right? So we've been fortunate enough to the other great influence in my career and my life was Lowell and is Lowell Goldsmith, who was my mentor and chair of dermatology when this all got started and is uh, my partner in crime in this. He's our editor in chief still to this day. And uh, Lowell is, you know, this genius, a clinician, researcher, uh, humanist and Renaissance thinker who um, was very open to these ideas and knew nothing about computing when I met him in 1990. Like he just was open-minded to, he says, sounds interesting. And he's like, send Kodak a letter. We'll give it a shot, right? So you have to you have to have great luck to meet great people and listen to them and try to learn from them. So I, I consider myself really lucky. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of How It's Med. If you liked what you heard, the best way to support us is to go to your podcast platform, be it Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever you like, and to give us a rating and a recommendation or a comment so that others can best find us. If you can't do that, then we'd really appreciate it if you could share your favorite episode with those that you care about and who you think would find our work interesting. Till next time.